It's Friday, 4th of August, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, we'll be hearing about why China's post-COVID recovery is disappointed and a special preview about Argentina's high-stakes presidential primary. But first, I'm joined by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. So the last time we spoke on this podcast was just after that June US CPI report, which shifted the inflation narrative and sent 10-year Treasury yields plummeting back below 4%. Now, a couple of weeks later, disinflation still enraged, but that 10-year yield has shot back above 4 What's been going on with the bond market over the past week? Yes, you're right. Moves in the bond market, the big theme of the past week or so. In contrast to previous moves in the bond market, when yields have either gone up or gone down, most of that action has tended to take place at the short end of the curve. Over the past week or so, however, all of the action has been kind of towards the middle and the and the back end of the curve, so the 10 and the 30-year part with yields rising and, and bond prices falling, as you, as you suggest. So what's been going on? I think there are two things, really. One, perhaps, is the decision by Fitch to downgrade US sovereign debt which grabbed a lot of headlines in the early part of the past week. But I think there's also uh, a reappraisal going on in the bond markets about how high interest rates are going to have to stay in order to get inflation under control. So there seems to be uh, a higher for longer narrative starting to pervade bond markets. So I think two potential explanations. The, The really interesting point, though, is that that reassessment of monetary policy by the bond markets is taking place against the backdrop of labour markets that seem to be calling an inflation that has been consistently softer than than the analyst consensus. So growing signs of disinflation across major advanced economies, but particularly the US, that sits very uncomfortably with the idea that that the bond markets are having this reappraisal and I think that interest rates might need to be higher for, for longer. What do you think accounts for that, given given how much monetary tightening we've had, given signs of weakness elsewhere in some of the economic data? Why are jobs markets proving proving so resilient? Are, are, are any signs of weakness coming through at this stage? Well, we're speaking just after we've had the payrolls numbers for the US for July, which were pretty much in line with the consensus, but again, consistent with a slowing pace of job gains but not the collapse in the labor market by by any stretch of the imagination. So a cooling labor market in the US. I think the really interesting question, though, is, and it's a question that was posed by Paul Krugman on Twitter a few weeks ago, is why are we getting these signs of disinflation when we're not getting any evidence of really large amounts of slack emerging in the real economy? So the transmission mechanism um, of monetary policy is supposed to work by the fact that interest rates go up, that weakens demand, that creates some slack in the economy, and particularly the labor market, and then that in turn dampens price pressures. Now, we've had the dampening of price pressures pass and inflation coming down, and it's not just headline and food, by the way, core inflation is coming down, particularly in the US, but we're not getting the slack coming through the labor market. Yes, labor markets are cooling a bit, but there's no real sense of slack. Unemployment's not picking up. In fact, the unemployment rate in the US is edged down in in July, according to that last payrolls report. So that's the real puzzle. And I think that's the the, the challenge. What is the theoretical framework for economists for thinking about what's driving inflation? I think there are two theories, perhaps related to some extent, about what's driven inflation in the kind of post-COVID era, both on the way up and on the way down. One is that both the pandemic and then the, the subsequent war in Ukraine led to a shift in the level of 
prices of some goods and services that is now washing through. So you get a level shift in prices. That's similar to what's happened after the end of the, the Second World War. You get a very short but sharp increase in inflation that then washes through. So that's one theory. Another theory is that a combination of supply restrictions during the pandemic and inflated demand as a result of pandemic era stimulus combined and had the effect of pushing economies to a place where they were then operating at full potential. And at that point, prices become very, very sensitive to small moves in demand. And you can get big moves in prices without getting big moves in or offsetting off moves in, in output. So I think a combination of things are going on, but the, the main effect of which is that supply changes and demand shifts moved economies to a point where prices became very sensitive to shifts in demand without output being very sensitive to shifts in demand. Now I think that process is unwinding and that explains why we perhaps get some disinflation without getting corresponding falls in output that the textbooks would say that you you would need. So good news on the inflation front. It's a fairly reassuring disinflationary process that you talk about, but, but inflation rates are still far above where policymakers want them to be, aren't they? Obviously, the process you described has helped bring uh, inflation down from, from, from its peaks. But how far can that process go? Talk a bit about the journey back to, to 2% targets. Yes, you're right. So far, so good. But in many respects, I think we're entering perhaps the toughest part of the, the disinflation process. And what happens next and how this unfolds, I think, will hinge to a very large extent to what happens in labor markets. And in particular, whether we get wage growth cooling. So at the moment, we have wages growing kind of 4.5%, a bit more in the US, even higher in, in Europe, actually. And clearly that's inconsistent with a 2% inflation target when you have productivity growth well below 2% in the major advanced economies. So if you're the Fed, you probably want wage growth somewhere between 35 and 4%. And if you're policymakers in Europe, you probably want it somewhere between well, probably three or three and a half. So we have quite a long way for wage growth to come down before it becomes consistent with 2% inflation targets. Now, the question I think really is, can we get wage growth down to those levels on a sustainable basis without injecting large amounts of slack into labor markets without the unemployment rate going up? It's possible. And indeed, if we look at leading indicators like the quits rate, that in the US is consistent with wage growth falling. But there's a big difference, I think, between what's possible in theory and what's likely in practice. And in practice, I think we probably will see some slack emerging in labor markets as part of the disinflation process. And on that disinflation question, I mean, if you're a data dependent US policy set, and this is going to be a big week ahead with the July CPI report on Thursday, talk a little bit about what we're expecting to see from that report. Yeah. So we have a 0.2% month on month increases in both headline and core uh, CPI inflation in the US for July. If that's correct, then it would actually push up the headline rates from three to three and a half percent on a year on year basis. That's because base effects are becoming a bit less favorable, but the core rate would, and that's what's really important here, that would continue to fall. That would leave it about 4.7% in, in year on year terms. So yeah, those 0.2% month to month increases in both core and headline inflation, if that's what we get would be substantially below what we experienced over the past six months. I think take a step back, a couple of things have happened really over the past two or three weeks on the macro data front. One is, as we've discussed, we've had more positive news on inflation, 
We've also had encouraging news on the real economy. So put those two things together. I think we perhaps have a bit less conviction in our call about recessions, particularly in the US. It's still in our forecast. We're still sticking with it, but perhaps have a bit less conviction there. But we are having more conviction in our view that inflation will ultimately fall a bit more quickly than the analyst consensus and the markets expects, particularly in the US. So a bit less conviction in the recession call, but becoming more convinced in our view that inflation will fall a bit further and faster than the most expect. Moving away from inflation and central banks, I wanted to finish on an interesting tidbit that came out of the earnings releases this past week. So you've got AMD, one of the, the world's top 10 chip makers, saying that they're going to be producing special AI chips for the China market that are designed to be compliant with US export restrictions on, on this technology. Uh, they're following Intel and NVIDIA in doing so, and it's kind of a trend we've been following in our work on global economic fracturing. But I want to focus on the fact that this involves artificial intelligence and, and the chips that, that are going to drive that technology. We've got a big project on AI and the global economy coming up, but I wonder what you could say at this stage about how the rollout and the adoption of AI technologies works in, in a fractured global economy. Yes, a really interesting story. And I think it's interesting for two reasons. One is that although there's a debate between economists about whether there's any evidence of fracturing in the actual economic data, it's clear from stories such as these that fracturing is a very real issue for multinational firms and it's having a very real impact on the operating environment for, for these companies. The second point, which you allude to, is that there's perhaps a sense here that AI and the development of technology around AI is opening up a new front in the debate uh, around US-China fracturing. And this is, as you say, something that we're going to be looking at in detail as part of our forthcoming work on the economic and market effects of the AI revolution. And there are some big questions that emerge from all of this. One is, what are China's own capabilities in respect of developing AI te technology at home if it can't? cooperate with, say, the US firms in this area. The second question, major question is, will this become a US-dominated area? And will the US lead the way in AI with other countries struggling to, re to really develop and adopt those technologies? And more generally, will AI become a new uh, fault line in, in global economic fracturing that we need to consider? And it becoming another way in which the world becomes a bit more disconnected, and US-China in particular becomes a bit 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 more disconnected. So more work coming on this. We'll be publishing uh, all of our analysis on the AI revolution at the back end of next month in, in late September. And of course, various events following through the, the fall and autumn period. That was Neil Shearing on our upcoming Spotlight Report on AI and the global economy. Look out for that work and associated in-person and virtual events in September and October. On the inflation front, our US team will be holding an online drop-in, one of our short-form webinars, shortly after the July CPI release this coming Thursday to answer your questions. So sign up for that session. Details on the podcast page.
We'll be hearing about China's economic problems in a bit, but first to Argentina, where the Paso primary elections are scheduled for August 13th, ahead of the final vote for a new president in October. Investors will want to be paying close attention to this upcoming primary. The shock outcome of the last election in 2019 triggered a meltdown in Argentina's financial markets. Kimberly Sperfector and William Jackson from our EM team are joining a drop-in this coming Wednesday to explain the potential risks around that vote. They spoke earlier about the election and Argentina's economic mess. Here's that discussion now, and it begins with Kim talking about the significance of this coming Sunday's vote. So the Paso elections are essentially held to determine each coalition's presidential nominee and to narrow down the fields of candidates. But because this is an open, simultaneous and compulsory vote and many candidates run uncontested, it's essentially a dry run for the actual presidential election which takes place in October. So on Sunday, we should get a first sign of which way Argentine voters are leaning which could have quite large implications for financial markets. In 2019, for example, the strong showing for the parents' coalition led to chaos in Argentine financial markets. The peso uh, was down by 20% following the, the outcome of the election, the primary election, and the stock market fell by 40%. Just, just how, how severe are the current problems in Argentina's economy? Yeah, I think they're definitely quite severe. So this election takes place against a very dire um, and fragile macroeconomic backdrop. So a drought is weighing heavily on Argentina's key agricultural sector. Inflation is running at over 115% year on year. More than two in three Argentines are now living in poverty and insecurity is becoming an increasing problem. And at the same time, the currency, which we think is severely overvalued, uh, is coming under increasing pressure. And the only way Argentina is managing to keep its head above water is with cash injections from the IMF. So in short, I think we're looking at an economy that is headed for a steep recession, that's on the verge of a, a messy balance of payment crisis and all of that just at a time when the election race is heating up. Who are the key presidential candidates and what are their economic platforms? Do they, do they have a solution to Argentina's current problems? So there are several candidates, but attention really focuses on four main ones. So for the ruling Peronist uh, coalition, the main candidate is Sergio Massa. He's currently the economy minister and is seen as one of the more moderate Peronists. So I think if he becomes president, you might see some more market-friendly reforms, but I don't think that these reforms will go uh, far enough to tackle Argentina's economic problems in earnest. For the opposition, we have Patricia Bullrich and Horacio Larreta for the centre-right Juntos por el Cambio coalition, and Javier Milei, who's a um, far-right self-proclaimed anarcho-capitalist. In terms of their, the opposition's key proposals, um, there seems to be broad-based consensus that the exchange rate needs to be devalued, Fiscal policy needs to be tightened and deficit monetization needs to be seized. Um, having said that, though, there are some key differences when it comes to implementing these policies. So think of all of the opposition candidates. Uh, Lareta is probably the most moderate one. While he has stressed the need to reduce public spending, he wants to take a more gradual approach when it comes to lifting FX controls and letting the pace weaken. His internal opponent, Patricia Boric, is more right-leaning, and I think I'd put her more in the kind of shock therapy light come. So in, she wants to, in her words, demolish this, the economic regime of the last 20 years and favours an, an immediate devaluation of the peso. And then there's Javier Millet, who's certainly the most radical candidate and is, is the wild card in this race. He favours a full-on shock therapy for Argentina. So he's talked about burning the central bank, fully dollarizing the economy and his so-called chainsaw plan um, envisages steep cuts to public spending. So I think Overall, if you take a step back, the, the good news perhaps for Argentina is that 
whoever becomes president, the next administration is probably going to be more market friendly than the current Fernandez administration. But I think it's hard to overstate uh, the dire state of the economy that the next administration will inherit. And history suggests that even a more moderate or more market-friendly government might find it hard to solve Argentina's economic problems. That was Kim Sperfector and William Jackson on Argentina's election. I'll put details of their upcoming briefing on the podcast page. And finally this week, China's post-COVID economic recovery has been one of the year's big disappointments. The economy grew just 0.8% in Q2 over the first quarter, and calls have been growing for the government to do more to lend support. But Julian Evans-Pritchard, our China economics head, warns that a quick injection of stimulus may not deliver the desired results this time. He's just completed a new estimate of China's trend growth rate using our proprietary China activity proxy, and that shows a worrying structural shift in the economy. I spoke to Julian earlier Friday and I began by asking why the Chinese economic recovery has been so weak this year. So there there are a few possible explanations. The first is that it's a problem with a lack of demand. So it's actually cyclical weakness in the economy that coming out of zero COVID, households just don't have a great deal of confidence in the outlook. So they're saving more. And in response to that, firms are also unwilling to step up their hiring. And that's resulting in a weaker labor market, which is further undermining households' confidence in, in the economy. And essentially that it boils down to a lack of demand. And the fix for that is greater stimulus. And once the government comes in and boosts demand, then growth will will bounce back. Now there's clearly an element of truth to that. You know, unemployment is high in some parts of the economy. Inflation is low. That suggests that there is some slack in the economy. But we don't think that that's the main reason that China's growth rate has declined so much since the start of the pandemic. We think there's a more fundamental structural reason for it, which means that even if the government were to step in with more stimulus, that would only temporarily boost growth, but growth would quite quickly drop back to lower levels. Can you talk about what this means in terms of China's trend growth rate and and how this affects your longer term view of China's economic growth? Sure. So we knew that China's uh, potential growth rate was declining even before the pandemic. Many of the reasons are well known. Worsening uh, demographics, slowdown in China's gains in global export market share. But what's striking since the pandemic is that the pace at which China's trend growth rate is declining appears to have accelerated. So on our estimates, trend growth has fallen by about two percentage points in the space of three and a half years so since, since 2019. And that's roughly double the pace of decline that we were seeing in the years leading up to the pandemic. And I think a key reason for that is really the structural shift that we've seen in the property sector. Up until a few years ago, each year, more homes were being sold. Developers were building more homes. And that was not sustainable in the long run. That's something we've been warning about for for many years, because at some point, the demographics, the slowdown in rural to urban migration mean that China doesn't need to build uh, more homes each year. In fact, it needs to build less homes. Uh, each year. And that structural shift has happened with remarkable speed. Um, Home sales are now down over 50% from a couple of years ago. And a lot of that demand is not coming back because, you know, there's just less of a need for, for home building and compared to the past. 
And what that means is that even if the economy returns to full employment, all of the sort of productive capacity of the economy is in use, it's not going to be growing as quickly as the uh, pace that we were used to when the property sector was, was doing well and was expanding. Where does that leave the economy in terms of economic stimulus? Lots of speculation since that Q2 GDP report about policy easing, but not much action. What are we still expecting the government to do? And given the structural shift in underlying economic growth that you're talking about here, how much can any policy easing lift growth? Well, um, we haven't had much concrete action since the weak Q2 data, but we've had lots of uh, pledges of, of action. And the, the most high profile being, of course, the recent Politburo uh, meeting. I think all the, the statements we've had from the government make it clear that we will get more policy support. It's just a question of them working out the details of, of, of what form that will take. As I said, you know, I do think there is some cyclical weakness in the economy, which warrants some government support. And, and I think in particular, the property sector, the very, very large uh, decline in home sales that we've seen goes beyond what can be explained just through the, the structural uh, slowdown story. There's clearly a degree of cyclical weakness in the, in the housing market. And it's just a problem of confidence, essentially, that uh, some households are staying on the sidelines because they, they are concerned that now's not the right time to, to plunge uh, back into the housing market. We know that households are sitting on unusually large piles of cash in bank deposits. And some of that money, if confidence were to return, would flow back into the, into the housing market. So there is some scope for a cyclical rebound there. And that's what the government is trying to engineer now, particularly focused on the, on the property market. And just today we had Zhengzhou, which is the capital of Henan province, introduce some, some property easing measures. And that's sort of the first a large tier two city to, to introduce fairly broad-based easing measures. And that's something that I think will be seen in other cities as well. So we are going to see some support and, and, and the property sector in particular is, will, will be the key thing to watch. But I think the fundamental conclusion from our work on China's trend growth rate is that that's only going to take us so far. You know, we will have a period of making up for lost ground, closing the, the output gap, getting back to trend, because at the moment the economy is operating somewhat below trend. But the key point is that over the medium term, even with policy stimulus, you're looking at growth rates well below uh, what we've, we're used to in the past. And Obviously, there's a debate over you know, what, which figures are reliable. You know, we have our own in-house China activity proxy on that basis. We think trend growth is only around 3%. On the official figures, they're likely to, to, to not fully reflect that. But even on the official figures, we doubt that the economy will be growing much faster than 4% uh, over the medium term. People inside and outside the Chinese government have spent years calling for a push ahead with those fundamental reforms, you know, areas like supporting the household sector, uh, doing more to encourage private sector versus state firms, et cetera. Looking at this macro environment, the, the structural economic changes that you talk about, the, the slowdown in trend growth, surely now is the time for that bold push. Uh, how likely is that? I think definitely the slowdown in, in China's trend growth rates kind of underscores the need for uh, a sort of shift in, in direction in terms of policy reforms. It's concerning that China's trend growth rate is declining so much 
despite the fact that it's still only a uh, upper middle income country. So on paper, there, there's still plenty of room for catch up growth, but catch up growth is not guaranteed. You know, it only happens with the right reforms. And I think that's what's currently lacking in China at the moment. Now, as you say, there's certain parts of the policymaking community in China that have been pushing for greater reform for many years. I think the, the main barrier is just the, the politics involved. The Communist Party and the leadership, particularly under Xi Jinping, clearly view a very important role uh, for the state in the economy. You know, they still believe in, the, in the, the, their previous model of uh, state-directed development and appear quite reluctant to embrace a more free market liberal framework, which is what many other su success stories in Asia um, adopted once they reached this level of, of development. So economies like um, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, unfortunately, we're not seeing that transition happen in China. And I think, you know, the, the political barriers to, to that transition happening are still pretty significant. And I'm not seeing any major evidence that, that that's changing, despite the kind of shift recently towards trying to adopt a more friendly approach to the private sector. Uh, our view is that that seems to be a strategic response to current economic weakness rather than a, a fundamental reassessment of the role of the states and the private sector in China's development model. That was Julian Evans Pritchard on China's structural slowdown and the potential for stimulus and reform. I'll post his report on the podcast page, along with a recording of our recent online briefing about whether China's in a balance sheet recession. I'll also link to the China Activity Proxy, the CAP, which is available to subscribers to our China economics coverage, but also along with all of our data is available to subscribers to CE Advance, our premium platform. But that's it for this week. You can find all the analysis referenced in this episode on our website, capitaleconomics.com, where you'll also find full details of all our events and recordings of past briefings. Also look at CE Advance for full access to all our analysis, data, and much much more. But until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.